Hello and welcome to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Armand Dangur, Professor of Classics at Oxford University. He's the translator of How to Innovate, An Ancient Guide to Creative Thinking, which I think is his most recent book. But the book that we're really going to be focusing on today is called Socrates in Love, The Making of a Philosopher, which he's written among a number of other works. So first of all, welcome to the podcast, Armand. How are you? And where are you speaking to us from? From London today, from my home. I'm here in Montreal. Um, So let's dive right in uh, with the relevance of Socrates. Why? are we talking about Socrates? Why do you think he's relevant and important today? And why did you choose to write about him? Briefly, I think it's something that um, everybody's aware of, that Socrates, life and death, um, dying by drinking the hemlock, being put to death by Athens. I think that's something everybody knows about. They've heard about Socrates, not just the footballer, Socrates the philosopher, uh, as the perhaps fundamental figure in Western philosophy, and a lot of people hear about the Socratic method. So, very important figure in the history of philosophy, about which people know a few factoids, perhaps, such as those that I've mentioned. Some might know that, you know, he had a a shrewish wife called Xantippe. But what they don't know is really what this person was like and how he became this founding philosopher, this founding figure in Western philosophy. And I just think that's very interesting. We have a lot more information about him than most people know. Yes. And the book that I wrote actually produces much more information, I think, than most people care to have thought about. And that means the academic world. True. And that's surprising because people have been writing about him for two and a half thousand years. Yeah. And yeah, I I said to you earlier before we came on that if I crack open a book about a topic like Socrates, I kind of think, oh, is it going to be all the same old, same old? And your book isn't. So by the way, I would recommend that everybody goes out and reads it because it's very accessible and it's quite an original work uh, in many regards. So, and the other thing I, I would mention about it is you're talking about Socrates' life. Socrates' life and his thought, his philosophy, his inner and outer life are inex- inseparably connected, do you think? Yes, I do. I think that all of our thinking emerges from who we are, where we're situated in our own lives, in our cultural lives, in our history. And Socrates, of course, was no different. There is a philosophical background, some of which he takes on, some of which he rebels against. The background which he would have inherited in the early 5th century would have been the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers, some of whom he knew in person, one mm-hmm. of whom the sources tell us he was the love, beloved boy of. This is a man called Archelaus, quite mm-hmm. well known in his time. Nobody has taken any of that seriously, and there's absolutely no reason not to take it seriously. Of course, you know, one might feel a bit uh, um, offended by the idea that in his youth, Socrates had a sexual relationship with a much older man. Uh But actually, that was something that was relatively commonplace to a certain uh, class of young man in his day. Uh 
And that already tells us something that goes against the standard views of Socrates, which is that he came from a terribly poor background. Yeah. Actually, if he did have an older lover who was quite a well-known figure in Athens and indeed was in the circle of the leading citizen of Athens, Pericles, Mm -hmm. then Socrates can't have been just some poor youth as he's made out to be. And there's a lot of other evidence that he wasn't. So Uh that's already a beginning of reconstructing, revising what people think they know about this man. Yeah. Who was this guy and what do we and don't we know about him? Well, I've got, let's, let's step back a moment because you're kind of touching on a, the first, first of many contor- controversies of today, which is, as you said, you know, on the one hand, it's puzzling that people don't know more about the most famous philosopher in history. Everyone knows his name. But they can tell you that he drank hemlock, but not necessarily that much more. In the ancient world, in antiquity, people would be able to tell you lots of stories about Socrates. The apology was very widely read, um, and people would probably know lots of anecdotes about him. Um, so his life would have been more familiar in a sense. But we have, now we have the first of many problems, um, the Socratic problem, which is how, what are we supposed to make of the textual evidence that we have. So we have Plato's dialogues, a lot of stuff, um, but there are some annoying problems interpreting the biographical content. And then we have Xenophon's dialogues, which people are less well-known, but we have a lot of them, and they paint a slightly different picture of Socrates. And then, to confound the picture even more, uh, most people probably won't know that we have Aristophanes' portrayal of Socrates in the clouds, which bears very little resemblance to the character that, that Plato portrays. Um, and then we have a bunch of other sources as well. So it's kind of a dog's breakfast of historical evidence, um, which you know you've you made your way through and, and constructed a story of. What are we supposed to make of all of this stuff? Like, how reliable is it? And for instance, um, we should say Plato's dialogues, how historically, how literally can we take the the historical content in them? I think we can't take a lot of them very literally. So Plato's 28 or so dialogues in which he makes Socrates the mouthpiece for his own ideas are obviously constructions. These are not the ipsissima verba, the actual words that Socrates would have used as they are presented by Plato. They may, to some degree, represent his words and his ideas. There's a general view that some of the so-called earlier dialogues are more faithful to what Socrates actually said and thought. The later dialogues are essentially Plato's own ideas and doctrines dressed up as things that were thought of and said by Socrates. I think that's broadly speaking true, but it means that we can't take Plato's dialogues as a whole and say they give us a biographical picture Uh of Socrates. And also the fact is that Plato was very concerned to present Socrates as someone who was innocent of the charges Uh for which he was executed. So he has a certain partisanship in the way he wants to present Socrates. For example, he doesn't want the world to think of Socrates as someone who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, Mm -hmm. even though 
in one of the very earliest dialogues, the Apology, mm-hmm. he has Socrates saying in his own defense, I became poor because I was following the instructions yeah. of the god Apollo to be a philosopher. So if, if he became poor, then it means he wasn't poor at one stage. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing slips out. And I think this yeah. is the fact that we have to track down in Plato and he and Xenophon probably didn't know Socrates until Socrates was around right. six. Right. So we also have to ask ourselves, what don't they know? So yeah. one, what do they want to show? What do they suppress? And what don't they know? And then you get other sources, which people have not taken seriously because they're not as coherent, they're not as full, they're not mm. as well-preserved as the mm. dialogues of Plato and the treatises of Xenophon. Mm-hmm. Well, here's another question for you. To what extent does it matter? Like, can we distinguish between... So on the one, I guess we have to distinguish between the real Socrates and then the literary construct of Socrates that comes down to us in the textual tradition. Um, and suppose it turned out that the, the portrayal of Socrates that we get bears very little resemblance to the real historical figure... I mean, might there still be some value in exploring and uh, elaborating the the literary construct? Uh, I mean, if this is semi-fictional, like, do we need to get to the historical truth, or is it worth simply discussing Socrates as a character? That's what always has been done. I mean, that is what we've done when we've talked about Socrates as a character. We have relied on what you call the semi-fictional tradition. That is the tradition that essentially is Plato and Xenophon and, to some degree, Aristophanes, since Aristophanes uses Socrates as a central character in Mm -hmm. his comic play, The Clouds. So it's not as if we're not already doing that. We're already relying on these semi-fictional and clearly semi-fictional because they differ in their portrayals, they come from different angles, and you know, we have to accept that that is what's been done. What I have done is I've said, look, there are these other bits of evidence yeah. which can create a different story. And you might say it's also semi-fictional, but I actually happen yeah. to think it's more true to the circumstances of Socrates' life as we know it within yeah. the history of ancient Athens. That's I, feel so- like, I think there's a benefit, even even if it so we can we can't know for sure, right? Unless like Doctor Who. We, we, we have a time machine and we, we will never know 100% sure. However, even, even if it turned out that the, the real Socrates doesn't really correspond to the image, the attempt to try and reconstruct a coherent image of his life, I think is beneficial anyway, because it gets us a bit closer perhaps to how subsequent generations may have perceived him. Um, you know, they, they, for instance, there are many things like, for instance, like in Plato's dialogues, Plato's audience would have received those texts in a manner and understood them and interpreted them in a way that's different from us today. Because just to give a very simple example, um, Plato alludes in passing to many events. He names many real historical individuals, which would mean little or nothing to modern readers, but meant a lot 
to his audience and would have added to the significance of the discussion and provided some context. So authors like yourself who are kind of trying to reconstruct the story, in a way, part of what you're inevitably doing is making the story more accessible, I think, by filling in some of the gaps uh, to a modern audience. That's what I hope to do. Um, and also to try and treat Socrates as a real person, because the thing is that with some of these very um, exceptional characters, uh, their exceptionality, you know, think of Jesus or whatever, um, uh, emerges in the course of the tradition that builds up around them. And um, in the case of Socrates, there are realities. The reality, for example, that he had a very young partner mm-hmm. when he was in his 60s. There's a reality that emerges from the pages of Plato that yeah. he was highly sexed. There's yeah. a reality that he had three children. And we have yeah. to ask ourselves all these questions about all these details. Yeah. If he's to be a real person and not just yeah. a secular saint who died for the truth, which is you yes. know, how people want to, to read Socrates because of later generations just saw all that as highly admirable. And so when Socrates says in Plato's Carmides, you know, I felt a flame with lust at the yeah. sight of his bare chest, that hasn't generally been repeated by the, the sources on Socrates' life because they don't want us to think that Socrates was randy at the sight of a young man. But that's what Plato tells us. Well, so we get this kind of sanitized version of, of Socrates um, and I wonder, in some ways, if Plato contributes to that, while at the same time... Um, be- well, actually, that leads me to a question you mentioned in passing. Let me back up slightly. Um, Plato putting words into the mouth of Socrates. So there's always academic controversies about the Platonic dialogues and, and things like this. But as you mentioned, the, kind of, the, the common perception is there are early, middle and late dialogues and that Plato gradually over time puts more and more of his own thought. So are we safe in saying, for instance, that Plato's theory of forms, that would be the, perhaps the most famous example of something that the majority of people believe didn't come from Socrates because Aristotle appears to mention in passing that the theory of forms was invented by Plato, in which case Socrates, if we take that literally, could never have said any of that stuff, right? I think that's right. I think there's no reason not to believe Aristotle. He said Socrates was not interested in the forms. That is a platonic creation. He tells us, Aristotle tells us very clearly that Socrates was really only interested in two things. One was definitions. Mm -hmm. What is love? What is truth? What is beauty? What is courage? He was always asking that question. Mm -hmm. And the other was in the idea that we should move from the particular to the general, which obviously relates to that. You can give me a particular um, episode in which you explain that somebody was very brave, but that doesn't tell me what bravery is. So move from that particularity to a more general understanding of something in order to get closer to what Socrates thought would be the truth, something that isn't changing something you can't say, well, it's brave in this case, but not brave in that case. I want to know what the truth is about bravery. Now, obviously, that leads to something like the forms, the unchanging thing that encapsulates bravery, truth, beauty, knowledge, and so on. But he didn't 
well, as Aristotle says, he wasn't interested in that. He just wanted to get to that generality. And then in some ways, what Aristotle himself does is he almost goes back to what he considers mm. to be Socrates' original idea. Right. He says, you know, the forms don't exist in the way that Plato said uh, they did. What he's, We're talking about a universals, you know, what you might say types rather than tokens, universals rather than particulars. So Aristotle goes back to what we consider a common sense view. This is mm-hmm. a matter of logic that there is such a thing as bravery, but it's, you know, not something that exists in some divine realm, as Plato tried to make it. Well, to put it very simply, Plato's philosophy is more mystical, more metaphysical, more otherworldly. And I guess that raises another question. One of, there, are many, there are so many curious oddities about this body of literature. One of them is that, you know, Socrates, I, would, I think, what comes, emerges from this is that Socrates, in many ways, is a kind of more worldly figure than Plato's theory of forms would imply. And, you know, an interesting question is, is, given that Plato is one of our main sources for Socrates, the way that Plato portrays Socrates, to me, and this may be controversial, it seems quite at odds with the type of person that Plato himself was and the way that he taught philosophy. So for, I'll give a, a maybe a kind of trite example. Plato did not do philosophy in the Agora. Like, and yet, all of his dialogues are about a guy that went around doing philosophy in the Agora. And so it seems like he's kind of portraying an idealized image of the philosopher, which doesn't really correspond to what, uh, in some regards, Plato was doing, or, or even in some ways, the type of philosophy that he was interested in. That's right. Uh, the portrayal of Socrates is of someone who is essentially a speaker, an interlocutor, an examiner, and a public one at that, and someone who leads his interlocutors to agree with him in certain ways, though not perhaps as um, insistently as some would have it. So very often the early dialogues in particular end with disagreement, end with what they call aporia, uncertainty. And I think that that's something terribly important to recognize about the real Socrates, that he accepted that uh, knowledge was provisional, that we were always on the path to knowledge, that we weren't going to get there and that we didn't get there, um, and that we needed to continue to examine these truths that we thought we had come up with to show that they weren't necessarily the final truth. So as he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. So that's the picture that Plato draws of this man, certainly in, in the earlier dialogues. But he has a f- sort of middle period, an early middle period dialogue, the symposium, in which we get a very different picture of Socrates mm-hmm. as a man of action. Socrates in the battle, Socrates yes. as a lover, Socrates as someone who listened to the doctrine of a very clever woman and said that, that was the one thing he knew when he knew nothing else. So all that yeah. is Plato's Symposium, a hugely a lovely dialogue and a hugely influential one. It's you know, the, the question of what is love, so yeah. a huge question for philosophers, and surprisingly one that hasn't really been handled by philosophers ever yes. since. And the associated question of friendship, which was a huge topic in ancient philosophy, um, and is you know, not a major subject uh, in contemporary 
philosophy, which would puzzle, I think. We'll come back to that stuff in a moment, but I actually want to interject another uh, sense in, in which there's something puzzling about the image that we get of Socrates. So when I read Plato's dialogues as a student at university, my first degree was in, in philosophy. I said Plato and Aristotle. So I got a little bit of exposure early on to Greek philosophy. I kind of had this image of Socrates walking around, chatting to his friends, walking through pleasant groves in the Lyceum and Academy and by streams, lounging on couches at the symposium in the houses of wealthy men, occasionally maybe ruffling a sophist a little bit. Um, but generally it seems kind of quite a pleasant, um, urbane kind of life that he led. Then I read Thucydides and I thought, oh my God, like Athens in the time of Socrates was a horrendous place to be. We're in the middle of the Peloponnesian War. Not only that, there's a tremendous poverty uh, by the end of the war, um, huge amount of political turmoil. We get some indication of that from the apology and so on, but uh, also the plague. Um, and so these things don't really come through. They're alluded to in Plato's dialogues, but we there's something oddly missing about it. We get a kind of, in some regards, a kind of sanitized image of Socrates in relation to the historical and political environment that he lived. As you mentioned, he was a hoplite and he served in some horrific uh, battles. You know, we'll come, we'll talk about this a little bit later as well, but it may even be Socrates probably knew people that were psychologically damaged by warfare, given some of the things that he'd been through. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and you would have known people who died. You would have known yeah. people. It's, you know, it's funny, we don't get any indication anywhere that he ever killed anyone, even though he fought in yeah. dozens of battles. And it's possible that he, you know, it, it, we aren't told yes. this explicitly. It's possible that he didn't kill anyone, that he deliberately kept his mm. fighting to uh, the point where he, he could retreat and, and, and wouldn't actually have to have the blood of, a, of another man, another Greek on his hands. I don't know. But we're never told Socrates actually killed someone in a battle. We're touching on many contradictions. Like, I mean, it, that's what's so much fun about this. But I'll, I'll mention one just in passing. You know, in the Apology, Socrates... Talk, compares uh, his presence in court to his military service and says that it's his duty as in the military to stand his ground. In the Laches, he defines courage, as you mentioned. Um, it starts off with the definition of courage as standing your ground, and then he questions that and says it's not an adequate definition. However, when we look at his military service, he often had to retreat from battle, and he was involved in a number of routes, so he probably actually fled the battlefield. Like along with all the all the other Athenians were were running in disarray from battles. Socrates must have. We're told we're, he's portrayed, and maybe this is important to Plato. Plato portrays him goes out of his way to portray him retreating during a rout in a very orderly manner. Uh, but nevertheless, everyone around him was running for their lives in in all different directions. Yeah, and yet here's a guy who goes on about how it's important to to stand your ground. Yes. So there are many contradictory threads, and it's quite challenging to imagine. Um, also, like you say, Socrates, on behalf of the Athenian assembly, was involved in arguably some quite unjust uh, and horrific, uh, like the siege of Potidaea, ended, we're told, in cannibalism. Um, and so, again, it's hard to imagine this guy discussing the nature of justice 
being involved in a campaign where civilians are reduced to such an abject condition. And so, the, you know, Socrates, the, these real events don't really impinge that much on his discussions of justice. It, which is somewhat surprising. Um, I mean, you mentioned Potidaea, so a campaign, a three-year campaign in which he served up in northern Greece. In uh, The Athenians were besieging the city of, of Potidaea. And um, in the end, the inhabitants starved a lot and starved to death and, and surrendered. And Socrates comes back in 429, so it's 432 to 429, and he, we're told at the beginning of Plato's Comedies that he's you know, just come back from Potidaea. Does he talk about it? No, he doesn't. Does he say that you know the the enemy were starving to death and some of them were eating their own parents in order to survive? No, we don't get any of that. And as you say, Thucydides fills in some of those gaps. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Plato may well have decided he's just not going to go there. He's not going to give us those kinds of circumstantial realities um, in order to move on to talk about the theme of the dialogue. But I think um, what we get is a little bit of those realities filtering through and above all filtering through in the um, symposium. But you mentioned the Lakeys and we are as well as the portrayal in the Symposium of Socrates retreating in an orderly manner at the Battle of Delium, uh, we get in the Lakeys, Socrates, in the mouth of Socrates, a piece of advice for a soldier mm-hmm. who has to run away. And he says precisely that. When you're in retreat, it's much better not to run. <laughs> so, it matches up with the experience we're told that he actually yeah. had in the symposium at Delium in 424. This is... but, yeah, so I think there's a lot of this personal experience that Socrates spoke about and emerges in the dialogues as Plato records him. This is where it gets fun. It's, it's almost like solving a puzzle. Like, you know, uh, it becomes very interesting. I mentioned earlier, like when I read your book, it felt as if you were writing a movie about Socrates and it's like the greatest story never told kind of thing it's an amazing story but it's kind of requires a bit of scholarship and a little bit of interpretation and a little bit of speculation to get there but I, I always felt like to, we're missing out on it today it, it's it's a shame that people don't know and can't visualize the story of Socrates because he's one of the most remarkable men in history and I, I really got that when I was reading your book, that there's a story waiting to burst out there, which, you know, people would perhaps would be, give people a way of getting into f- classics and into philosophy. Um, yes, I completely agree. And in fact, um, a young screenwriter in America has written a fabulous screenplay, which I hope one day will become a Hollywood movie. Now, I mean, these things require a producer to take them up and realize their potential. But the screenplay, interestingly, is set in uh, 447 BC, when Socrates would have been 22. Mm. And that was a time when Socrates would have met, and and we're coming to this now, would have met the young Aspasia of Miletus, who was this beautiful, clever woman who came to Athens perhaps three years earlier, and would have known Socrates because she was part of Pericles' circle, as was Socrates. Yep. 
and uh, he would have known her. And in 445, she was with Pericles. She married him or she moved in with him and then was with him for another 16 years. Uh, But she was half Pericles' age. So we set the the screenplay at a time when Socrates is just about after his first battle. Uh And he's met this woman. He's fallen in love with her. He returns from his battle and he finds that she has decided to go off with the leading citizen of Athens, Pericles. So he is put in a position, and this is very much like Shakespeare in love, where Uh the love of his life has gone off with someone else and he has to decide what to do. Shakespeare became a playwright. Socrates becomes a philosopher. That's a fantastic way of approaching it. And uh, let's dig into, let's get kind of nerdy about it for a minute and dig into some of what's going on there. First of all, a bit trivia for you. The last time I saw Aspasia or Aspasia um, was in the City Hall of Athens um, because there is a, uh, I went to the mayor's office for an event we were organizing there and there's a bust of her alongside Pericles in the Athenian City Hall. But most of our listeners will never have heard of, I mean, many of them won't have heard of Pericles, but mo- I, very few of them will have heard of Aspasia. And yet she is kind of a female Socrates and certainly uh, one of the most, or is she a female sophist, you know, or a bit both. Like, certainly one of the most intriguing women in history. But just to broaden this question a little bit be- before we go into it deeper, so it's often said that there are very few women in ancient philosophy. And Socrates certainly isn't a woman. However, strangely, everything about Socrates is paradoxical. Strangely, when we study his life, there are a number of quite intriguing women on the periphery that play quite important roles in shaping his philosophy. Do you think that's fair to say? Yes, I think, um, well, I think there is really just one, and that is Aspasia, because one could say, you know, Xantippe, some some people have attempted to say because she was a difficult partner that she might have persuaded Socrates to sharpen up his argumentative technique. But the problem is Socrates met her when, you know, she was she had a babe in arms when Socrates was dying age 70. So how old was she then, 30? Mm-hmm. If so, he can't have met her more than about 10 years earlier when he was 60. So this is a man who's famous for being quite sexually vigorous and yet mm-hmm. his first experiences with a woman when he's 16 that just doesn't make any sense at all and Aristotle right. luckily tells us that no oh, no he had a wife much earlier than that I think we can reconstruct it was much earlier mm-hmm. uh, gives us her name he gives us her lineage so he ha- and, and he tells us the first two sons of Socrates were from her Plato mm-hmm. interestingly suppresses that just tells us yeah you boys from Xantippe okay so um Yes, Xantippe, I don't think, had any influence at all on Socrates' thinking. Mm-hmm. But Aspasia, or Aspasia, as, as I call her, certainly will have done, in my view, because mm-hmm. she is undoubtedly the model for the woman in the symposium that Plato Whoa. gives the name Diotima to. This is great. How confident are you? Of, of Absolutely that, certain that there is a modelling going on. I'm not saying that Diotima, as presented yeah. in the symposium, is Aspasia, but uh-huh. Diotima is someone who is meant 
to make us think of Aspasia. Yes. And what I, I discovered were two reasons for thinking that. One is that the name given mm-hmm. to this apparently fictional person points mm-hmm. directly at Aspasia because the name means honoured by Zeus. Zeus was the nickname given to Pericles by all the comic poets. So this would have been known by readers of Plato. Yeah. And famously, Plutarch tells us that Pericles honoured Aspasia above all women and more than most Athenians honoured their wives yeah. because he embraced her in public. So honoured by Zeus could only have meant to many Athenian readers, yeah. ah, Pericles, Aspasia. So we should back up a little bit and explain for the listeners this. Diotima is this character in Plato's Symposium who Socrates, again, remarkably describes a retrospective, like retrospectively describes a conversation with, where she teaches him about the art of love. She teaches him a kind of philosophy of love. And she, unusually for Plato, she, we're given a fairly specific date. We're given a couple of clues that are fairly unambiguous about the dating of it. It's pretty early on in Socrates' life. And then one of the other challenging things about it, I don't know, I can't remember if you mentioned this or not in your book, but what she actually says to Socrates, according to him, is that she questions him using something that looks like the Socratic method, which raises the question, is he implying that he learned the Socratic method even from this woman? And then that raises another contradiction. Because in the Apology, Plato has him says that he develops the Socratic method himself after uh, the pronouncement from Delphi. So he gives us what, on the face of it, looked like perhaps two conflicting accounts about where that method may have originated. Well, I mean, the, the Socratic method that he says he employed after going to Delphi was finding people who thought they were clever mm-hmm. and showing them that they didn't really know what they were talking about. So he would go to these senior politicians or wealthy businessmen, and he'd say, tell me what courage or truth or or knowledge is, and they would come up with a confident answer. And he'd say, but here's a a counterexample, and they would then be lost. So he gets his answers or gets closer to the truth by questioning common assumptions, and then saying, well, we don't know actually what these things are, but we can get closer to them by stripping mm-hmm. away untruth. So that's the sort of negative method that he calls his dialectic, his, his conversational method. Now, we get a bit of that from Zelton, but actually we don't really get the method because she tells him, this is what love is. Here's my doctrine. And in some ways that goes against what Socrates goes on to, to, to say in his philosophy because he says, you cannot simply tell somebody this is how things are. You have mm. to always have to question. And so some uh, scholars have actually said Diotima is not particularly Socratic in the way she presents that. She presents a doctrine of love. Mm-hmm. However, Socrates says in the symposium, this is the truth about love. And if he says that, it means he knows that what she says is correct. And um, that is unusual because Socrates generally doesn't say, I know the truth. He says, we're trying to get to the truth and we may never get there. In this Mm -hmm. case, he says, well, I know the truth about love because I was taught it by a clever woman called Diotima. Mm -hmm. And he gives us this date that you mentioned, 10 years before the plague. She Mm -hmm. had, that was in 440 BC. Um, And um, that was when Aspasia would have been ensconced with Pericles and uh, every reason to think that she did the thing that Socrates says was done at that time. 
So what he said anyway, I listened to this clever woman, who he calls Diosma, on more than one occasion, talking about love. And uh, this is what she said. And so that is why I know what love is. And he was in his late 20s, I think. Well, he doesn't say that. He says, I heard approximately. her, I heard her uh, you know, some time ago um, giving this doctrine. And uh, if indeed uh, we're talking about the 440s, then yes, he would have been in his 20s. And, well, let me think. So, Aspasia, do you, let's try and flesh out the image of her a little bit. Um, how would you relate her? How would we compare her, for example, to the sophists? Well, interestingly, in the symposium, Socrates describes how she gives the doctrine, and he says, just like an accomplished sophist. So he effectively calls her a sophist. She She gives her doctrine like an accomplished sophist. Now... Socrates didn't want to be thought of as a sophist. Plato certainly doesn't want him to be thought of because the sophists pretended to an expertise which Socrates mm-hmm. didn't believe they could have. They said, these are the answers. You want to know what, how to fight? This is how to do it. You want to know how to think about grammar or about life? They had all the answers. That's mm-hmm. what a sophist was. An expert is what one translation of the word sophist in Greek, someone who has sophia, wisdom. Socrates said, no, I'm not a sophist. I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm a seeker after Sophia, a seeker after wisdom. And that seeking is a love of wisdom. A lover is someone who pursues. I'm a philosophos, a pursuer of wisdom. I'm a philosopher. So he made that distinction. Plato wanted to insist on that distinction. The average Athenian had no interest in that distinction. They called yeah. Socrates sophist. Yes. Famously, years later, Eschines in his speech says, you put Socrates, the sophist, to death. Yeah. Not even thinking that Socrates would have said, well, just a moment, just a moment. I never claimed to be a sophist. I never claimed to be an expert. I only claimed to be a seeker of, of after knowledge. So, yes, Diotima, unlike Socrates, is presented as an expert, someone who knows mm-hmm. the answer. So in that sense, it's different from so- the way Socrates presents himself. He actually buys it or appears to. He says, this is the answer. This is the doctrine that she taught me, and it's the right one. So, you know, he's doing that. Now, she's not using dialectic on him, really. I mean, she used a little bit of of question and answer, but essentially she gives him the doctrine. But Mm -hmm. she also does two other things. One is she insists on a definition, and she gets to a definition. She tells him what love is. And the second thing is, she tells us that part of her doctrine, anyway, is that love proceeds from particular objects of love to a much more general view of what mm-hmm. love is. And, and it, it goes up a ladder, she says. Now, those are the two very things that mm-hmm. Aristotle tells us were what Socrates was interested in, definition yeah. and moving in a particular. So she certainly, if it's correct that mm-hmm. Socrates learned his philosophy from her, he might have learned something about dialectic, but I suspect, as you say, he learned that from trying to question what the Delphic Oracle meant by saying he was the cleverest of men. But he certainly did learn other things, which was the notion yeah. of definition is important and moving from the particular to the general is important. So she was an expert on the art of love. She appears to have some kind of wisdom, but she also, in that discussion, in a sense, defines what it means to be a philosopher and she defines it in a sense, negatively, as somebody um, who lacks wisdom, but loves wisdom. 
Mm. So again, there's a kind of tension there between the fact that she seems to have wisdom, but the way that she portrays what it means to to be a philosopher. And she also, um, in another platonic dialogue, we're told uh, that she wrote speeches, Mm. um, like a sophist or a rhetorician. Although, correct me if I'm wrong, but historically, are there any examples of women delivering speeches in uh, in public in in Athens, not at this time. Certainly not at this period. So this is quite odd behavior, you know. And it, perhaps, and like, maybe she was giving. No, it certainly you, doesn't say she ever delivered a speech. It just says she, she wrote. She wrote the speech which Pericles delivered. Yes, she wrote the funeral speech, and people have laughed at this. But it's in a, a, a dialogue called the Menexenus by Plato. Yeah which he says, you know, I went to Aspasia and asked her how to do a funeral speech. And she said, I'll teach you the one that I once taught Pericles. So we imagine the great funeral speech that he gives in 430 BC, as reported by Thucydides. Wow. And he's, and, and so they are uh, together and he's learning and, and repeating some of these uh, elements of the speech. And he said, and when I got it wrong, she nearly slapped me. Yeah. So they're in a, Position of close familiarity. Yeah. And this is and when we, older, I have to say. So this is set in yes. late 5th century, right. right? 60s, and so she would have been as well. I mean, I think part of what the picture that you're painting as well is that Socrates had more access to the circle of Pericles um, than people might normally assume. That's hugely important, and it's obvious as well, given that he was the tutor and the best friend and, in fact, the deepest lover of Alcibiades when Alcibiades was in his late teens and they shared a tent together in Potidaea. Socrates was in his 30s. And Alcibiades was Pericles' ward. Pericles was guardian from the age of five when his father died. Xenophon tells us that that, uh, Socrates was friends with Pericles Jr., and he was friends with Pericles the Younger, who was the daughter of, sorry, who was the, the son of Pericles, son of a, yeah. Pericles and Aspasia, and who was executed in 406 BC because he was one of yeah. the generals who fought in the Battle of Argonusae and failed to pick up the dead. And the Athenians put them all on trial en masse. And amazingly, what a coincidence, Socrates came out of self-imposed uh, abstinence from political life for the only time we ever hear him doing so in order to try and defend those generals against the charge of mass slaughter. And why did he do that? There can only be one answer. And that was that somebody asked him, presumably Aspasia, to help to try and save her son Pericles Jr. And as you say, in Xenophon's memorabilia, we have a dialogue between you know, friendly dialogue between Socrates and Pericles Jr. about, you know, the, the, suggesting that the two of them were on familiar terms. Also, we have a pseudo-platonic dialogue. Now we're getting real deep cuts called the Axiochus, where Socrates uh, seems to be on friendly terms with another member of their family, who is, if I remember rightly, Alcibiades' best friend and uncle. Yeah. Uh, so Socrates seems to be is portrayed as being quite entangled with this whole extended family. Exactly, and that just must tell us a lot about his background. He was not from some poor indigent stonemason's 
family. If his father, we're told, was a stone worker, but it, there's no reason to think he was some poor, lone artisan, as many have decided he must have been. Uh, he could easily have been a stone worker who employed perhaps dozens of slaves in yeah. a large factory producing reliefs and statues at a time when Athens was commissioning these at a huge rate for all the new building works that, that, that Pericles had instigated on, on the Acropolis. So let's not assume anything about his background uh, that we aren't able to verify. And what we can say is he was a hoplite soldier that needed a wealth yes. level to be proved. Yep. Uh, and, and he was in the circle of Pericles, which he wouldn't have been if he'd been some poor indigent artisan. He was clearly from the upper classes, or at least not from the lowest class. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we should, for the sake of the listeners, do you want to just kind of fill in people that might not be as familiar with the, the history and say a little bit about who Pericles was? So Pericles was the leading statesman and politician of the 5th century BC from around 460 BC. This has been when, when Socrates was only about 10 Pericles was already a leading political figure, and he was a populist. So although he himself came from an extremely aristocratic background, and he was part of a clan called the Alcmeonids, which had produced important leaders and politicians from Athens uh, in recent and not so recent history, but recently, for example, Miltiades, the general who was the victor at the Battle of Marathon, he came from that clan. There seems to be evidence that Axiochus, who you mention, was also an Alcmeonid, and that um, Alcibiades certainly was, we know. Uh, this was the young man who Socrates loved and looked after and who was Pericles' ward. So these Alcmeonids, this very important clan, very important in Athens, produced Pericles who then became the leading citizen of Athenian democracy, voted general time and time again, and um, someone whose career continued to make him the top man in Athens until his death in 429. So a 30-year span of political power and influence, and mm -hmm. in the course of that, attracting some very important think thinkers, including a man called Anaxagoras, who um, had a colleague or pupil called Archelaus, who we are told was Socrates' older lover when Socrates was a teenager. So Archelaus, Alcibiades, and then Aspasia herself related to the daughter of a, of a man called Axiochus, so related to these, these important elite influential clans, including Pericles himself. All of that gives us a picture that most of us don't associate with Socrates. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to, in the spirit of fun and just kind of speculating a bit about things, there's something else I wanted to ask you about. We talk, I mentioned earlier about the role of different women. Um, Who were you thinking? A bunch of them, like the Pythia, Theodota, uh, but also Finarate, um, his mum. So Socrates famously says, that he abandoned his father's profession as a stonemason uh, in order, figuratively, to follow in his mother's profession as a, a midwife. Although his mother was, I think, you know, maybe this is a slightly misleading translation, perhaps. Maybe you can correct me here. 
But I think his mother in ancient Greece would have not merely been what we think of as a midwife, but her, her, the role that she's alluding to is slightly broader than that. She would have been an older, wiser woman that other younger women went to for various pieces of life advice, including uh, incantations, rituals, potions, he mentions, um, childbirth. But also, he says, matchmaking, interestingly, mm-hmm. which is something he refers to many times. And he also, in Xenophon's memorabilia, says that Aspasia was an expert on matchmaking. Socrates clearly um, thinks of himself as a, a matchmaker, in a sense, figuratively, or however you want to take it. So I wonder, and this would be while kind of just speculating, if Socrates' mother actually was an expert on matchmaking, and if Aspasia taught matchmaking, uh, is it possible that these two women had ever met? But certainly, if his mother was genuinely had a professional interest in this, you'd think at the very least she would be interested in what Aspasia had to say about it. Well, you see, I, I would have thought that it's completely far-fetched to suggest that his mother was a professional midwife. Right. Um, so I think that, I mean, he brings that up in, in the dialogue called Theaetetus, uh, and it's clearly meant to lead to this figurative notion that he, as a philosopher, is bringing to birth ideas in the people he meets and philosophizes with. So then he says, of course, my mother was a midwife. What does that mean? Well, she, as you say, she was an advisor. She was an older, wiser woman. She was the kind of person who people came to for advice on things like, as you say, falling in love and getting matched. And no reason to suggest any of that was a professional activity, let alone the activity of being being a midwife. So I don't think we should assume that any more than we should assume that his father was some poor lone artisan. Well, do you think it's something that she was known for? Like, yeah. perhaps well, she was known for. She was known as a woman, perhaps the wife of someone really quite highly placed in his village, because we know that her husband, uh, Socrates' father, Sophroniscus, uh, was best friends with Lysimachus who himself was the son of a very aristocratic man called Aristides. So there's an aristocratic circle there, or an elite mm-hmm. circle. And I think she, with her name, Fine Arite, the mother, which suggests shining virtue, it's, it is almost an aristocratic name in itself, um, would have been known for the kind of activities that highly placed elite women did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Aspasia, similarly, as you say, was interested in all that stuff. She was supposed to have held a salon advising Athenian men on what a good marriage should be like. There's a a snippet of that in uh, Cicero, Mm -hmm. where he is quoting from a book, which unfortunately is lost, which was a a biography of Aspasia Mm -hmm. by a pupil of Socrates called Aeschines. And in that, Aeschines describes, and Cicero quotes, how Aspasia would um, welcome to her home, or presumably her father's home, or Pericles' uh, home, uh, couples who wanted to learn how to be successful in their marriages. Mm -hmm. And so she gave advice on that, and she was known as a matchmaker. She was known as a clever woman who could teach people the art of eloquence, as she taught Socrates, yes. all of these things. So I I agree with you that there seems to be a strong influence. I mentioned another parallel, actually. 
from the slender evidence that we have about finarity, Socrates also mentions in the Theotetus that she doesn't normally advertise, or women of her kind don't normally advertise the fact that they do matchmaking because they don't want to be accused of being a procurus. Indeed. Which is something that Aspasia was accused of being, if I remember rightly. So I just mentioned that as another kind of parallel. That's very interesting, actually. Yes, thank you. Um, Of course, it's true that Aspasia was accused of all sorts of terrible things, and people have taken them seriously. You know, she was accused by the comic poets. So there is not a single sniff of, uh, not a single whiff of accusation in Plato or Xenophon Mm -hmm. She was anything but a respected woman, a very clever woman, someone who Socrates could say, I can send my friends to you for advice on how to run a household, someone who taught in Plato, uh, taught Pericles and Socrates how to give a speech. All of that is what we learn from the serious biographers and philosophers. What we learn from the comic playwright is that she was a prostitute, she ran a brothel, that she made Pericles go to war because some of her mm-hmm. whores had been stolen. Yeah, We can't take any of the, what the comic playwrights tell us seriously, and yet people have done so amazingly, and they haven't taken what Plato and Xenophon tell us seriously. She's a classicist in her job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, says- it's an absurdity. You know, um, if you're going to take someone seriously, it's not a comic poet. <laughs> yes, I think that's fair. Although, that, I mean, it's one of the... What can we take from Aristophanes? At the same time, you know... We, Aristophanes we, doesn't tell us that. No, I'm thinking about... Okay, I'm coming back to this earlier question, I suppose, which is still in my mind. Of what do we know about Socrates himself okay. and the clouds being... You know, but well, let's say the satirists in general. Mm. Um, you know, so we can't take them seriously. But at the same time, they provide us with some sort of evidence. In, a, in a, an annoyingly indirect way. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, sorry, yes. I mean, Aristophanes does say that it's because of the prostitutes who were stolen by the Megarians that Pericles started the Peloponnesian War. Mm-hmm. So he does, you know, he does join in, but this is after Pericles is right, dead, yeah. in fact. He yeah. does join in the slander that the other comic poets were happy to level at Aspasia. Well, let's get to come back. If we broaden our perspective, say we look at the clouds, mm. there's a lot of detail in there which seems completely different from the way that Socrates and Zen, uh, Plato and Xenophon portray Socrates. However, the ve- if we start with the very at the very minimal level, what I suppose we can take from Aristophanes is the fact that Socrates must have been pretty famous. Yes, presumably. Um, so he provides evidence of that at the bare minimum. Yes, uh, he would have been well known to be the butt of a whole comic play in that way. Well, well-known within Athens. So there's a story that Elian tells us yeah. that the foreigners who came to the great Dionysia where this was put on uh, were asking, who is this guy, Socrates? And uh, Socrates stood up. I say it's like his Spartacus moment, stood up so that they could see that the man on stage was supposed to be modelled on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> great story. I mean, possibly made up. But the idea that Socrates... Um, went to see this play in which he was portrayed and then felt a need to explain to people that there is a real person who's being made fun of. I believe you could still go there. And uh, the Theatre of Dionysus would be where that, on the slopes of the Acropolis. That's right, yes. You could potentially sit where Socrates was allegedly sitting if you wanted to (laughs) go on a a trip there. depends whether you believe that... (laughs) If you believe the story. If you believe that the Marble Theatre of Dionysus existed at that time. 
a lot of scholars do not. They think right, it was I uh, built later, and that at this stage the theatre might have been in that spot, but it would have just right. consisted of um, wooden chairs uh, yes. piled up. That would make sense. That makes sense. Now we could talk all day, but I wonder, do you have time for a few more questions? Yeah, sure. I've got a couple lined up. Okay. So, first of all, like, why on earth did Socrates become so fixated on Alcibiades? What did he see in the sky, to put it colloquially? So, you know, the 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 image that we get, for example, from historical sources is of a reckless, arrogant uh, figure. It's, it's, to some extent, accused of being a traitor. Um, unpredictable. Like, why was Socrates so strongly associated and so attached to Alcibiades? What was the nature of their relationship? <laughs> well, that's a big question. But um, he was clearly smitten by him. He And... As far as we can tell, Socrates, uh, Socrates would have met him or at least would have known him when he was a young boy. So there's some evidence from that in Plato's dialogues that, where Socrates says right. he he was playing with other boys. He was yeah. playing chicken, you know, you jump. And and when and also playing with the, the dice equivalent to Stragolos. And when uh, he he um, found another boy cheating, he he was furious and said, you dirty cheat. Anyway, so one imagines that Socrates was already in Pericles' circle, and when Pericles takes over the guardianship of Alcibiades after Alcibiades' father, who's related to Pericles, dies in battle at the age of five, Socrates mm-hmm. is already on the scene. Mm-hmm. And at some stage, he becomes his mentor and his tutor, and I mm-hmm. make the point in the book that this must have been with the approval of Pericles. Um, so uh, then as this boy grows up and we're told he was the most beautiful young man in Athens, so he must have been physically uh, uh, extraordinary and lovely. And he was also, a celebrity. I think it would well, be a good way of putting it. We're thinking about him as 13, 14. He was a scallywag at that point. So there's that, a, okay, yeah, if we've got, yeah. at that age. But he would go on to become a huge... Like, and then he must have been an incredibly charismatic figure. Very charismatic, but you know he shares a tent with Socrates, and 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 his his life is saved already when he's nineteen. So mm-hmm. we're talking about this young man. Socrates fights with him. He he you know he, they fight in, in campaigns together, but they also they wrestle together. They talk together. They think together. He teaches him. Alcibiades says in the Symposium, you know, he's the one person in whose company I didn't stray. Mm-hmm. Of course, at that stage, Alcibiades has become a traitor to Athens. So he goes on to become a populist leader, one who you could you could find many perhaps parallels with leaders who people think, oh, you know, there's someone from the upper classes, but he's he's someone we can trust and we like. And recently in Britain, of course, that happened with Boris Johnson. Amazingly, not necessarily the most beautiful man, but uh, Alcibiades did have beauty as well as uh, that kind of charisma. And then uh, he's accused of doing some sacrilege, terrible sacrilege, just before the expedition to Sicily and is exiled. And Mm -hmm. the only way he thinks he can uh, recoup his life is to go to the other side and help the Spartans. 
And he does mm. that for a bit and he then returns to Athens. He manages to win back the popularity that he'd lost for a while. Mm-hmm. And then things go go sour again, uh, and just as he runs off into exile, he is uh, he is executed by probably by a combination of Sparta and Persia. So it's a very it's a very exciting life. It's one which I'm sure he wouldn't have chosen to uh, it, to be thought of as a traitor. He would have loved to be an Athenian hero, mm-hmm. but having been exiled by Athens for his sacrilege, he becomes a traitor. Mm-hmm. I think what happened to Socrates is that having brought up this young man and loved him, as he said, more than he loved any other man, he probably would have been dismayed when Alcibiades went over to the other side. But I think up until that point, he would have had a grudging admiration for the way Alcibiades was such a popular, such a beloved figure. He was mm-hmm. kind of everything that Socrates wasn't in that respect. He mm-hmm. was someone who was very much into the life of politics and very successful, hugely persuasive, yeah. hugely charismatic. Socrates said that his inner voice prevented him from being yeah. a politician. So I think. Well, do you think they were opposites yeah. in some regards? Maybe yeah. it's worth saying. Yeah. On one hand, he was his alter ego. He was someone Socrates would have wanted to be a dashing, brilliant, clever. Um, uh, controversial soldier. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he was exactly the opposite. He mm-hmm. was someone who involved himself in political life, got got out there and persuaded people about things that Socrates no doubt would have had a million doubts. So he was both. He was the what yin and have, What did they have in common? I think they had aristocratic and elite aspirations, which means being good mm-hmm. fighters and good speakers. They both wanted to be those things. They both mm-hmm. were those things. I think they probably had some political notions in common uh, in the sense that Socrates is presented by Plato as an arch-democrat, but that's clearly because mm-hmm. the Athenian democracy required him to be that uh, at the time when he was accused of helping the aristocrats who wanted to subvert democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, I think in reality, Socrates, we know, was quite scathing about the way the democrats were simply led by the nose, that the demos of Athens Mm -hmm. were led to do all sorts of things that were were really detrimental to the state. And although he fought for Athens because it was his city-state, he didn't approve, I think, of a lot of the things that democracy got up to, which were clearly you know, dubious in the extreme anyway, and they did it for, for pretty bad reasons. They did it for mm-hmm. you know, to, to become colonialists and to become uh, right. uh, wealthy on the back of the Athenian, uh, the subjects of the Athenian empire. So well, maybe we should just enter, just to flesh that out a little bit. The Athenians did some horrific things, like war crimes. Yeah. Horrendous things in Mytilene and in, in Milos and so on in the course of the Peloponnesian War. And they did so because the assembly voted for them and the assembly voted for these things because populist politicians like Cleon and others argued that this is what the assembly should do. So Socrates and Plato could clearly see the shortfalls of the democratic system. It allowed the people as a whole to do things, to be swayed to do things that were simply wrong and uh, executing all the generals en masse in 406 would have been another Mm. of those decisions where Socrates would have thought, this is the problem with democracy. They vote with their emotions. 
um, and they're not thinking about what is right and, and whether these people should all be executed en masse. So um, Socrates himself was no doubt a critic of democracy. It doesn't mean he was a tyrant or an oligarch. He probably did agree that people should be educated to be the leaders of the state. So the idea that everyone from top to bottom could have a vote, I think, would not have been Socrates' uh-huh. ideal political stance. Mm-hmm. So all of those things he would have had in common with Alcibiades. Right. Well, let me ask another question. So you mentioned the fact that, I guess we have to assume that some of the listeners won't know some of these stories. So, for example, one of the anecdotes is about Socrates saving the life of Alcibiades at Potidaea and kind of earning a, a, a decoration for valour, um, which uh, he was passed over for, and it was awarded to Alcibiades instead. But also in the the retreat from Delium, it's kind of implied that Alcibiades protected Socrates. And in a sense, perhaps it could even be said that Alcibiades saved Socrates' life, or at least helped to protect him during the retreat from that battle. So that both of those incidents really contribute to this picture of there being a tremendous bond, apart from the fact that they're in love with each other. And they've no Alcibiades has known Socrates um for since his his youth and their family you know Socrates knows his family they saved each other's life they as well serving ambassador they must have been tremendously close following those events um but to come back to the experience of warfare i i remember that you'd you'd mentioned socrates's voice or sign um did socrates have mental illness would be uh, an interesting question. Does it relate to perhaps his experiences during the war and so on? How is the voice an auditory hallucination? Yeah, I mean, we would call it that. I mean, unless you actually want to believe that he had a voice um, that was, as it were, divinely inspired, we would say he had an auditory hallucination. He tells us he had it from early youth. So it's not something that came about because of his fighting experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had it as a young boy. I actually... Um, associate it with a comment that he makes a, in, in one of Plato's dialogues, Protagoras, about how um, truants are beaten by their fathers. Yeah. I, I associate it with that simply because if he had been beaten by his father because he played truant, uh, and, you know, there's no evidence for that, but you know, except that he says that's what happens when boys play truant, then it's possible that that would have left a scar on him because he might have felt guilty that he wasn't doing what his father wanted him to do, which presumably was go into the family business and become a stonemason. Uh, and he wanted to go off uh, into the city and listen to f- people speaking about philosophical things or about uh, educational matters. And mm-hmm. he was then picked up by this older man, Archelaus, and, uh, you know, who, who, and then they became lovers. Who knows what brought about this auditory hallucination? It wasn't of enormous... Um, import in his life. He said, um, for example, it stopped him from uh, walking forward when he could have been run over by a cart on one occasion. So it could have, he said, it prevented me from doing things that were potentially dangerous. The more important than that was perhaps the fact he said, it stopped me from going into political life because it warned me that if I did that, I would become um, much hated. I'm going to... I'm going, to, I'm going to challenge that view. And I said, perhaps. 
like a little bit, a tiny bit. Because if I, I remember correctly, I'm stretching my memory a little bit here. I think in the first Alcibiades, Plato refers to the voice and says that Socrates withheld from approaching Alcibiades until his voice ceased to deter him from doing it. So if that if that's true, it would have defined the nature of his relationship with Alcibiades, if we can take that yeah. at face value. Maybe then it is more important, uh, even than we would, uh, than I have suggested. But yes, uh, something perhaps did stop him from getting too close to Alcibiades too soon. Who knows? I mean, actually, if the picture of this young boy becoming his tutee or or mentee at a very young age is true, then you Mm -hmm. can't imagine how Alcibiades, age 19, would have said, sleep with me, which is what we're told he he did in in the symposium. You know, he couldn't imagine why Socrates was resisting him Mm -hmm. because he said I was a very beautiful young man. How come he resisted me? Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. <laughs> a lot of ancient sources say, of course, Socrates and Alcibiades were actually lovers. Mm-hmm. But Plato wants to paint this picture of them uh, so that he, you know, he shows Socrates as this much more high-minded man, only interested in Alcibiades' soul, in order to save Socrates from the kind of suspicion that he, uh, he corrupted young men. That was one of the charges on which he was executed. Mm-hmm. And it presumably... Implied a sexual um, liaison, this corruption. The word in, in Greek, diaphero, does imply sexual corruption, mm-hmm. but also political. So, I mean, whatever the truth of the matter, anyway, um, he did eventually become a, a lover, either platonic or otherwise. And, you know, of course, platonic comes from the symposium um, of Alcibiades. And, but- yeah, would have supported him. Something else that I wanted to ask you, but this is quite a specific question. It's just something that's always arced me about Plato's Apology. So there's a a part, there's a passage in Plato's Apology where he says that after the pronouncement made by uh, the Pythia at Delphi, the oracle, that no man was wiser than, than Socrates, he says that he immediately went to Athens um, and sought out a statesman Yes, that was renowned for his wisdom, but he doesn't name him. Um, and then he says this man became angry and irritated with him, and so did a number of his associates. And he implies that that kind of the animosity that was generated pursued him, uh, and then obviously he started to challenge other people. Who what, who was that statesman? <laughs> Could only have been one person, couldn't it? Well, do you think it? Do you think it was Pericles? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I wonder, I wonder. I've got another candidate, maybe maybe a more controversial one. Mm. Okay, all right. right. This is controversial, but not not too far removed from Pericles. I wonder if it's possible that he could be referring to Protagoras, who acted as uh, an envoy on Pericles. He was a metic, um, so he wasn't an Athenian citizen. Um, But I wonder if he could be describing Protagoras as an ambassador and a lawgiver as being a statesman, because Plato does imply that Socrates made the point of seeking out Protagoras, and he seems like the obvious candidate. If you wanted to find out whether 
Pericles would be a good candidate. Protagoras would be another obvious candidate for the guy that'd be top of your list. Um, if you were Socrates and you were serious about finding out whether there was uh, anyone that genuinely, because he was known as the wisest man alive. So yes. in, in the dialogue, Protagoras, of course, um, Socrates really treats him with tremendous respect. And I, I, in that sense, um, you know, the dialogue as we get it in, from Plato doesn't suggest that Protagoras got pissed off with him in any way or vice versa. Um, whereas I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Pericles did get pissed right. off with Socrates. I was going to ask you about their relationship. There yeah. is some kind of, I think there's some conflicting evidence about it. Uh, it's sometimes in the Platonic dialogues, Pericles is portrayed in a very positive light, sometimes in a more critical light. Yes, I mean, I think he's he's presented quite critically, in fact. Um, Socrates keeps his distance in the Platonic dialogues. That's what I think, because Plato doesn't want to go into this kind of detail. Now, maybe if Plato was telling us the truth, he'd have said, look, Pericles, first of all, took Aspasia mm -hmm. when she had been Socrates' lover. Mm -hmm. Secondly, Aspasia uh, was writing these speeches for Pericles in which she had said, because she had got pissed off with, with Socrates for not mm -hmm. taking part in civic life. Right. And one of the things Pericles says is, a person who doesn't take part in civic life right. is not just a private citizen. He's useless. Now, yeah. who's he talking about? There is one obvious character who should take part in civic life but doesn't, and that is Aspasia's former lover, Socrates, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so on and so forth. The Alcibiades thing, why is this man who's supposed to be teaching my my ward, Alcibiades, allowing uh -huh. him to be so off the wall in his behaviour. It seems to me that there are all sorts of reasons why Pericles could have had a certain froideur in relation to well, Socrates. Actually, what would confirm what you've said also is in Xenophon's memorabilia, there's this weird little mini-dialogue where he portrays Alcibiades, if I remember rightly, approaching Pericles and kind of humiliating him yes. in a way. Um, actually, he makes quite a snarky remark to him. Very snarky, yes. If uh, I, he says, yeah, if I were a, a young man, I wouldn't act like you or something. And he says, well, you're an old man, I wouldn't act like you, or whatever it is. He's quite, he's quite rude to Pericles. He says something like, back in, you know, well, yes, when I was at the height of my powers intellect or something, <laughs> and he says, oh, I wish I'd met you then. Uh, yes, yes. If I remember, something along those lines. Yes, yeah. yes. So she, he portrays, Xenophon portrays this kind of friction that mm. seems to be as a result of Alcibiades being, I mean, certainly Pericles would have come away from that thinking Socrates is corrupting the youth. Yes. <laughs> like, he's, made, he's made my words like, yes. act like a real jerk. Yeah, I mean, it'd be worth pulling all this together and, and writing a piece about the relationship between Pericles and Alcibiades, because I, I think you've got a point, or between Pericles and Socrates. So maybe it's time to, to wrap up, and yeah. I guess the conventional place to do that would be, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you very briefly the, the big question, the cliched question in a way about Socrates. Why was Socrates forced to drink hemlock? Well, we're told that, of course, he could have avoided the death penalty, but that he chose to follow, he said, the laws of Athens. Xenophon actually hints that Socrates knew that he was ill anyway, and that he uh, was prepared to die a noble death. He was 71-ish. Mm. 
and perhaps you know not in the best of shape at that point. Um, there are all sorts of suggestions you could make as to why he went along with it. Um, uh, a classicist uh, has suggested that he wanted to die a death that would make him famous. You know, being aware that that, mm-hmm. that that you know if he just simply died of old age, no one was going to to pay any attention to all his work. Uh, all of that could be true. But, um, I mean, the, the simple reason as to, as to why he was put to death by the Athenians is that they were persuaded that he was a danger to their democratic system. And they were not pleased by the fact that he seemed to be rather flippant in his defense speech about what mm-hmm. to them still seemed to be serious charges. Because only a few years previously... Mm-hmm. There had been some terrible battles between the Democrats and the oligarchs, and mm-hmm. hundreds of Athenian citizens had died. And yeah. he was seen to be the man who had at least encouraged this kind of oligarchic activity that had led to the overthrow of democracy on a couple of occasions. So, he was one of his students yeah. who led the... Critias was the head of the 30 tyrants, and he was one of Socrates' yeah. close students and associates. Alcibiades had done the same and possibly helped to bring about Athens' defeat in the Peloponnesian War. So uh, this is what they believed. And uh, if he had stood up and said, look, you know, I actually was uh, trying my best to help the Athenian democracy, which I believe in, that would have been perhaps something that would have allowed them. And this was a serious trial, by the way. People forget this. 500 jurors had to be assembled. This was not just some poor old tramp who they picked off the street. This was an Uh important political trial. You don't get 500 people together for any old person. They Mm. thought that he was a serious threat to Athenian democracy, and they Mm. decided by a majority that he was not defending himself in a way that they felt was plausible, and so they they put him to death. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think hopefully the discussion that we've had today will inspire some people (laughs) to go away and learn more about Socrates, drink some hemlock. Like, we go away and learn something about Socrates because he really is one of the most remarkable. I easily, in my view, I'll I'll be bold enough to say he's the most remarkable, enigmatic, multifaceted figure in the history of philosophy as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think that really comes through in, in your book about him. So Socrates in Love, again, I would I, I would encourage everyone to go out and, and read your book uh, if they're at all interested in, in the subject. It's one of the most unique books on and interesting subject books on the subject that, that I've read. Um, so I strongly recommend that. So, well, that's been another great discussion, I think, today. So thanks to today's guest for joining me. And we hope that all of you listeners enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. So please share the link with your friends and subscribe to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life, the newsletter on Substack for more podcasts and articles on philosophy. Thanks for listening. And it's goodbye from me, Donald Robertson, and from my guest, Armand Dangour. Bye, everyone.